Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am Brady, I am your host, and I am lucky to have had the chance to chat with Sarah Welch, who is our guest today. She's the Vice President at Ideas42, a behavioral innovations and research lab that does, among many things, focus on charitable giving and sustainability. And that's really what we're talking to her today. So we go into some of the research around donor advised funds and loss aversion and goal setting. We talk about testing and randomized control trials and its role in philanthropy. We kind of meander in a, a nerdy chat in a bunch of different areas. Um, but Sarah is brilliant. She, just in case you don't trust me, she's got two degrees from Yale and one from Harvard. And her wedding cake was just made of cheese. So uh, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> she's really smart and does a great job of uh, articulating some of the research that they're doing and how it applies to individual organizations as well as philanthropy overall. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi Sarah, thanks for coming on the show yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to talk about Ideas42 and some of your very cool research around uh, user behaviors and charitable giving. But can you just tell us a little bit more about Ideas42 and really how it came to be? Sure. So Ideas42 is a nonprofit organization. We actually started as a research lab at Harvard. We were founded by uh, some behavioral scientists who wanted to apply the techniques that they were seeing in behavioral economics and psychology to the real world to help people immediately, hmm. um, rather than just focusing on the academic side of things. Uh, and let's see, that was about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, we spun out since then, and now we're our own entity. We have maybe about 100 people across multiple offices, and we work on all sorts of different projects, all related to applying insights from behavioral economics uh, to solve difficult social problems. Awesome. And that's really where kind of I came across some of your research because one of the problems you're looking to solve is how can we help people be more generous kind of at a, at a high level. So that's what I want to talk about today. And really some of the research that went into a study called Best of Intentions. Can you just highlight um, kind of like that study real quick before we dive in? Like why did you want to, to do that study and kind of how did you go about doing it? Yeah. So that work, uh, there are, I guess, a couple different aspects to it. So the first gap that we saw, so a lot of behavioral science, what we see, uh, one of the challenges that we're looking at is we see people, see human beings who want to um, achieve some action and they have a hard time following through. So uh, that intention action gap is something we see a lot in our work. Mm. And often we find that understanding the sort of cognitive quirks of humans and the context of interacting with them, that we can solve those problems, then uh, we can help people follow through on those intentions. And mm. so in this case, the sort of intention action gap that we see are um, both in terms of generosity. So we did a, a study that uh, surveyed some people about what they their expectations around how much money they should be giving to charity. And we found that on average, people thought the number was something about 6% of your income. Mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, uh, the number is closer to 3%, the average in the U.S. And um, so there's a, a gap there that if you multiply out and extrapolate, that's about $250 billion 
um, a year that, that we're missing out on from the giving mm -hmm. perspective. Uh, and then the other gap that we see is also uh, in how and uh, where that money goes. So how intentional and how informed and how effective donors feel they are with their money. So there's some research that found it's you know something like 85% of donors say that they care about the effectiveness of the charities that they support. But when you dig into it, the number that actually donate based on relative performance of charities is something like 3%. So there's this intent, this desire to, to, to donate to a place where your money will do good and do, do it effectively, but it's, uh, it's hard to actually get to that, that part. Yeah. And the, the last one in particular is, you know, really complicated because there's the whole element of like, well, how do you evaluate performance of nonprofits? And how do you compare mm -hmm. one nonprofit to another nonprofit, which is its mm -hmm. own like massive issue. Then how do you communicate that in the ways that a donor could actually understand, you know, without needing a, a PhD in economic development to understand why, you know, a certain type of water system is actually more productive than this type of water system. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's the front end communication side to letting them understand. So there's, there's even some, um, you know, some challenges before we even get to that point of how to, how can they even choose in the first place, right? So there's some fundamental, Absolutely. you know, issues that we have to resolve before we can even understand uh, how to best position it, which is why, you know, the research that you and others are doing is, is really, really important. Um, so let's, let's dive into some of the, the specific areas of, of research that you did in that study. One of the, the things that you look into is like donor advised funds in particular, both as kind of a, a mechanism, right, of you can give and then distribute to many nonprofits. So it's interesting, but also kind of, um, you know, the, the rise of the DAF is something that in the philanthropic world, everyone's kind of aware of. But um, why, why specifically did you look into donor advised funds and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so Brady, I think you just mentioned this. They, they are really interesting, right? So uh, in theory, the, the mechanism is, is a great way to support this intentional and informed giving. So it lets you as a donor set aside money now or plan to set aside money in the future in a recurring way. So you, you get that feeling of donating to charity and that warm glow now, but then you can actually take the time in theory to think thoughtfully about where you want that money to go. Um, but in reality, what we see is a lot of money stays in deaths. Um, and that's the sort of behavioral explanation there might be that it's hard to, again, to follow through on our intentions. So we know that humans put things off and it's easy to procrastinate, especially in the case of DAFs where there is no deadline really for you to, to, to donate out, grant out. Uh, and so we were really interested and our DAF partners were really interested in understanding that problem a bit more. Um, so understanding, yes, how do you increase contributions to DAFs, but also how do you encourage people to grant out those, those mm. contributions? So um, one of the things that, that I found is you kind of did some survey type data, right? To just better understand, like, why do people even do DAFs? And, uh, you know, is this really altruistic or is this really financial? What, what did you find there in terms of maybe some of what they said their their desire was? Right. So a lot of people, uh, and, and I don't question this really, people do have altruistic reasons for setting up a DAF, right? So they they really do intend to to give that money to charity. One day they will. Uh, and they want to do, do good, right? So uh, again, I think the challenge comes, it comes down to this behavioral question and this, this thing that we, we know how humans act, which is that it's hard to follow through on that intention. It's also hard to follow through because the guidance really isn't there, as you mentioned, right? So understanding where the, the right charities are to donate to, uh, that takes time and effort. And yeah, you need to be a PhD or a CPA to pull the tax forms and really understand what's going on. Um, 
so, so there's that opportunity there to help those staff uh, users uh, get that guidance that they need and, and help them follow through on those intentions. Yeah, uh, I'll circle back to to this at the end after we talk about some of the actual experiments that you did. But can you can you highlight one? I know there's one kind of at year end. What can we do to get people to maybe consider giving or dispersing more frequently? Can you share more about that uh, experiment? Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the the more basic challenges here is that in charitable giving as a whole, as a donor, you don't really get a lot of feedback about uh, mm-hmm. where you donate and where where your impact really is. And so, in a small way, we wanted to to get at that. So what we did in this experiment is we created a year-end email to reflect back to uh, donors where, to DAF holders, uh, where their money was going, how much money they I think it was actually quite simple. It wasn't even where. It was how much money they had uh, contributed and how much money they had granted out. And that even just that small amount of information is, is valuable and is more feedback than many donors really truly get. Hmm. And uh, what we saw... <laughs> <laughs> was uh so we saw some interesting impacts um i think well so first what we saw in smaller donors this information this this feedback is just again just a year-end email um prompted them to grant out more really worked in terms of increasing their activity hmm. uh, and so what we you know digging into that a little bit what that probably means is that those smaller donors are really experiencing this 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 feeling of not getting a lot of feedback, not really, not really knowing where they stand. Hmm. Uh, and so really benefited from that and, and uh, acted. The other thing that we saw that was interesting is that um, receiving this feedback caused most givers to sort of rebalance their portfolio. So to realize like, oh, if, I'm, if, I'm a, if I've been granting out a lot, um, I'm going to put more contributions in and then you know, vice versa if, if I uh, have been slower on the granting out in the contribution space um, to increase my grants out. So it definitely resonated, right? So it was definitely demonstrating that there is a need, that there is, that this barrier does exist, that um, DAF users really don't have a sense of, of where they stand uh, in terms of their altruistic uh, goals. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting. So, the, you know, the point you made earlier is, you know, people have altruistic goals, but um, I mean, even some of the treatments when they log in, it's really very financial driven, right? Here's your assets and it's because a lot of donor advised funds are managed by asset companies that exist to maximize wealth and assets, which is totally fine, but they don't necessarily exist to like maximize your impact in the world. Um, so it's interesting that uh, I mentioned earlier, I, I used to work for an online DAF company. And one of the things that they've started doing is partnering with financial institutions to say, great, you can house the DAF um, or like we can kind of work with you on your clients and housing the DAF, but we, we have philanthropic brokers basically that will help them more strategically give it away. So you be an expert at finance, cool. We'll help them give the money away kind of like once it's in there. And I think that's a pretty interesting approach, whether it works or not, that concept of just, you know, division of labor, just because you're an expert here doesn't mean you should be an expert here, you know, right. can help. So I think that's interesting, but the, the reflecting on one's giving is, um, you know, it's not unique to DAFs. Like that's something that we've seen in other charitable research where if you actually ask people, how is it that you want to use your time? How is it that you want to use your money? And if they actually think about it, they're actually more generous with their time and with their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just hard to get people to pause and think about, you know, their, their time and money. Um, right. So the DAF environment seems like a great environment to do that more frequently. Like what are some of the applications of this type of concept, maybe within a DAF or just kind of for nonprofits or charitable giving writ large? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a couple of things you just touched on. So one 
is that is is remembering that donors have such limited attention. I mean, hmm. everybody, right? This is true of everyone. Uh, and um, getting in front of someone to get them to sit and think about their their giving is actually really hard. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of other things going on. You're competing with a lot of other other things in their lives. And um, I think, well, I just want to go back to the one of the interesting things about DAS, right? Is that you've already dealt with one piece of that that challenge is getting them to set aside that money. Mm. Uh, and so then that platform becomes very interesting in terms of an opportunity to get someone to think sit down and think one more time about where that actually goes. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, you have to do it twice <laughs> as opposed yeah. to, you know, the once. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the, the one um, experiment that, that we've ran with a nonprofit, for example, is for returning donors. And that's key, like returning and repeat donors in the online mm-hmm. giving flow. There's a question that's just, um, what, what would you like to see your money do this year, basically? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like a membership type renewal. And by asking that pause and think question for them, it helped increase giving. I think it was almost 50% for mm-hmm. those people. But if you ask that type of question to a new user, it's it tanks because, you know, they don't know you yet. They don't know what your impact is yet, right? So it's like the where we ask the question and in what context is really important too. Like if you just ask an average person on the street, they maybe wouldn't react the same way a donor advised type, you know, person would too. So I think that's what's interesting with these uh, concepts is you know, it can be applied in two different areas and one will be really successful and one will be, you know, not successful. Right. Right. And that gets the importance of testing. <laughs> there you go. Care a lot about. <laughs> which, which we'll circle back to, cause that's obviously really, really key. Um, so another interesting experiment that, that you did was, I mean, I'm maybe using the wrong terms cause I'm not a behavioral economist like you, but like loss aversion or framing or something like that. Can you explain, it was in the context of workplace giving and just so many people don't max out their matches. Is that basically the, the problem? Right. Can you explain that one for us? Yeah. So we did some work uh, looking for ways to encourage. So it wasn't even, I mean, give the match is a, is a piece of it. This was actually a free credit that you could just donate to a charity of your choice. Uh, and ah. yes, <laughs> so free money. Free money. We're leaving it on the table. Huh. Uh, and so, um, and it was new employees specifically. And so this one, again, uh, not to, to, to keep going over this, but uh, attention is limited. So this really shows us too, because this is free money and, and new employees are being told about it. And the usage of the credit was something like 25% um, or even lower than that. Sorry, mm-hmm. I think the baseline was much lower than that. Uh, the And so what we did is we tried a couple of techniques to both get attention and then also motivate people to use that credit. And so the um, the loss aversion piece, just to step back and explain that a little bit, is that as human beings, we feel the loss of, of an amount of money much more strongly than we feel the gain of that same mm. amount. Uh, and so, and if you, you can go online and go find some some tests around mm-hmm. yourself to really experience that. But uh, but basically, mm-hmm. what we wanted to do here is reframe that twenty five dollar credit as as not a credit, but as like something that you have and if you don't use it you will lose as mm. opposed to this like bonus that you could right, get right. if you want uh and so so we reframed it as a, a loss and then also in terms of of making sure we were getting attention uh we tried two different types of tone i think the first one was more of a sort of corporate tone and then the second was a, a more personal warm tone uh and that personal tone was much more effective at i think probably getting attention really and then so we started with getting attention with that personal warm tone. And then, uh, and then we had that loss aversion framing around the credit itself. 
And so we tested two different emails and the personal tone was much more successful than the, the uh, corporate tone. Uh, but again, I think the coming back to that attention is limited. I think overall we were still, maybe we maxed out at like 34% or something. So there was still a lot of money being left on the table. And, um, you know, I think that's just again, to, to highlight this more broadly, that that is a, that is a challenge that we should keep trying to solve. Uh, yeah. There's more to be done there for sure. Well, and I think there's the, the two things that jump out there. One is, um, how much opportunity there still is in this whole space of, of generosity for all of us, you know, uh, donation page converts to like 17%, which means 83% of people click donate and don't give, or, you know, mm-hmm. 64% of people have free money to give away and don't actually distribute. So, you know, you talked about that intention gap, uh, you know, the $250 billion gap, it's probably much bigger because there's even mm-hmm. more that we could do. So that's, you know, something to to keep in mind and how interesting that is. I think the other thing too, for us, I mean, I call myself a charity nerd, but you know, people who study this, I think it's, it's good for us to understand just how the average person cares, but probably cares a lot less than we think, you know, mm-hmm. those of us that do this work, we care a ton. We spend our lives doing this. So we project disproportionately about how much the average person maybe cares the wrong word, how much time or attention they give it to your point. But there's a gap there as well where, right. you know, people just aren't reading and clicking and thinking about this. Like we hope or think that they are, they just aren't. Right. And I, I think the other thing is to remember is that for most people, the experience of thinking about charitable giving, that only happens when somebody asks them for money, mm, right? So mm-hmm. something bad happens or your friend is running in a marathon or, right. you know, there, there are different reasons. There's a variety of reasons, but it's, it's often our donation is a reactionary uh, thing. And, um, you know, we get used to that mental model of how charitable giving should work. And so you can be a very well-intentioned, intentioned, uh, well-intentioned donor yeah. and still, you know, be sitting and waiting for someone to ask you for money. Um, and, and a lot of the time, what we're trying to do here is actually get people to be a little more proactive, right. And a little more thoughtful and informed about where they're giving. Yeah. And so. I think that's, what's really interesting because, you know, donor fatigue, something that everyone, not everyone, a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about it's like, Oh, I'm so fatigued. But then the problem is if, if you do not ask whether you're a donor advised fund or a workplace giver or a nonprofit, that the ask still plays an absolutely critical role in making people think or engage with the decision to give or not give. People don't just sit at home and wake up and be like, I should really give some money. Like there has to be some impetus for them to engage. And that's where the ask comes. So when we hear people say donor fatigue or getting asked, often I think the translation is it's it's a bad ask. Like it's not mm-hmm. contextual. It's not relevant. It's not done well. It's just like, you know, money, please kind of ask. I think that's where more of that comes out. Because if we don't ask, then people will not give for for a lot of what we've seen. I don't know if that um, is too like crass or not, you know, yeah. aspirational enough. I'm not sure, but it, it does seem like that is a critical piece that we have to do. Right, right. I know I, you know, we entertain thoughts of like, could you just blow that all up? Is there a way to totally change it and t- turn it on its head? And um you know, uh, remove that requirement in some way so that donors could fully be proactive and the, you know, every most effective charity gets all the money they need. It's uh, (laughs) quite, quite a big challenge. Um, Yeah. And maybe, you know, we'll get there over time or make some progress towards there. Um, maybe this ties into, so one of the other experiments you did around goal setting, um, mm -hmm. is that is a little bit more like, you know, how do you structure things so that people can maybe build, charitable giving or charitable activities more into their, you know, everyday life. 
uh, mm-hmm. with some set markers. Can you explain kind of like uh, the goal setting project and kind of what you found? Yeah. So that principle, like you said, is a pretty, it's a fundamental principle, right? If you want people to be proactive and about their giving, uh, it seems like one thing that they should do is set a budget or set <laughs> some sort of, have some sort of idea of what they want to, some sort of plan set for what they mm-hmm. want to give. Uh, and so this was a, a simple goal setting tool. Um, we partnered with Bright Funds, which is a workplace giving platform. And um, what users did is they could set a goal. Uh, it was a percentage goal based on their income. It's a very simple, very quick uh, process. And then after you set that goal, every time you logged into the platform, you saw feedback on how close you were to reaching that goal. Um, so, and then there were a few emails that reminded people of, of you know, whether they were on or on track or not. Um, so it was pretty simple, pretty simple goal setting tool. And what we saw is it worked really well for the people who used it. Um, mm. We, you know, not a ton of employees truly engaged with it. Um, and this again goes back to this like attention challenge <laughs> that I am a little bit obsessed with right now. And I really <laughs> yeah. want to solve uh, because if you can get people to sit down and do it, it will work. Right. right. And they'll find it useful and, and it will make them more generous. Uh, hmm. But uh, you know, we're competing with a lot of other, other things in your life that get in the way. Um, hmm. uh, and so, but I do think, so again, though, we did see some promising results uh, and, are excited about trying to scale it up. And again, this gets to like the, the role of a DAF, right? A DAF can actually kind of help with that because it can be that goal setting place and you can actually kind of, you can set that goal and then you can follow through and be held accountable to that goal if you're actually setting that money aside. Uh, so anyway, we do think that goal setting is really interesting uh, and it was a promising result and are hoping to kind of increase that. And the other interesting thing there is that it does help the workplace setting can help to create this like norm of, of mm. giving in a thoughtful and intentional way. So if it's something that everyone around you is using, um, you know, then it will continue to be the sort of the, the sort of like go-to way of thinking. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's actually a huge uh, opportunity in the world of philanthropy moving forward. Isn't so much corporate giving, right? I mean, there is corporate giving and workplace giving, you know, it's kind of like blurred lines depending on how they structure it. But um you know, that, that opportunity for the, that social norms and that, those conversations to happen, I think, in the context of a, a corporate culture is, is massive. There's things that you just can't do as an opera. Like, you can't convene all your donors and talk about goals and match. Like, it's just, it's really, really different. And it's, that's why I love mm-hmm. the, the type of research, or in the study, at least, is some of it's in that workplace. Because I think that's been an undertapped, you know, underused. There's kind of like the pass the hat campaign once a year, but... Right. And, you know, is this really intentional? Is this really helping people drive generosity? But there's so much that we can do because it is kind of a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. On, on that note, I want to, um, we'll end on kind of testing and some of the methodology. I'd like to hear more about like, what, what are you doing now? So this was, you know, a couple of years ago and you've, you've done some of that research, but like, what are you working on now? What are you excited about other than finding how to get people's attention, which is critical? <laughs> yeah, no. So this work, right. So this work, uh, with some work we did a few years ago. And then we've been, since then, we've been building on the learnings from this initial foray into the space uh, to to now design uh, sort of more concepts from scratch that we can actually partner and test uh, with, with folks. Hmm. And so the, yeah, we have a few insights and learnings that are really driving that. Um, of course, attention is limited is number one. <laughs> um, but but again, just understanding how we get in front of donors at the right time when they can really take that action. Um, hmm. 
uh, and going beyond even just giving platforms, right? So we've done a lot of work on giving platforms when people are in that discovery mode, but like how do right. you get people to sit down with their families or something and, hmm. and start setting this norm of giving in intentionally and thoughtful ways. Um, so yeah, so that's something we're really interested in. Uh, we're also the insight around that I mentioned earlier a little bit, how giving is so reactive and emotional. Hmm. Um, so something that we are, is a very important thing that we, we do not want to lose is that people give because they, they want to do good, right? They want to have this emotional connection and, and this warm glow and that is completely valid and exciting and like a wonderful part of being human. And it's not something we want to get rid of. And so sometimes when we think about, you know, goal setting and numbers on the page, it starts to remove some of that wonderful emotional aspect of giving. Mm -hmm. And so something that we've learned sometimes the hard way, right? Sometimes by designing something that was a little bit too mathematical. Um, we, <laughs> uh, so like, you know, some of those early goal setting prototypes, for example, right. um, we really don't want to lose that, right? We want to make sure we're designing solutions that really preserve that emotion while still allowing donors to be intentional and informed and thoughtful. Yeah. I think that that's a great point there too. Cause I think a lot of, um, you know, like a lot of people like yourself, and I'm sure your colleagues in a lot of researchers and a lot of academic, a lot of people who create giving platforms um, have a certain kind of, you know, way of looking at things. And then uh, unintentionally, perhaps it comes out in like the work that they do. So, you know, years ago, there was a study called Seven Faces of Philanthropy, and they tried to break up their donors into seven buckets. And the investor, you know, the type who really looks to like maximize impact and ROI and data was like 12% of donors at the time, you know, so the point being, whether it's 12% or 20%, the reality is not everyone is motivated by that type of thing. And so I think there's almost like a disproportionate amount of uh, platforms and research kind of going into that because that's who builds platforms and who does research are the right. analytical type, right? So we're right, kind of right. like, why aren't you giving? It's like, well, they're nothing like you. They, they operate totally different. So unless of like one solution to rule them all, it's almost right. like, you know, how do we let the analytical types give in the analytical way? How do we let more like, you know, legacy dynastic type people engage their families and pass on values, you know, and like, that's also strategic, but it's different. So there's like, um, you know, this has to, to kind of evolve. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, this is kind of like a comment. Maybe you can yeah. figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, absolutely. I and mean, we're looking at some ways of, of bringing that sort of like the, going back to the giving guidance or the feedback piece, like how can you make mm. that feel more personalized and warm and, and, and actually giving feedback is kind of cool because when you donate, you get this kind of burst of warm glow, right? I feel mm -hmm. really good. I'm helping someone. But then in theory, right, when you get that feedback later on that says, Oh, these are the people you helped, you kind of get that again. So, mm. you know, so if we, we do that well, that can, that can actually help make it more uh, strengthen that emotional connection. Yeah. Uh, well, and maybe this is a good, good test in, or a good link into kind of like how, how you test. Cause I do think that's, that's the thing that we've struggled with a lot. A lot of our early day testing is pure acquisition, get an email, get a click, get someone to give. And our, our focus and the industry's focus really on acquisition has created this chronic problem of lack of retention, lack of engagement. Um, and part of it is it's hard to collect that data. It's, it's hard to understand you know, behavior over a six month time period, or, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it's really hard to understand. So then you just default to what you can easily see. And we know conversion rates, but we don't know what happens 12 months later. So one of the interesting things about your, your testing and approach is trying to not just look at, you know, one moment in time, but more of the, you know, longitudinal impact. Can you talk more about, you know, testing and, and maybe even like RCTs and philanthropy 
or what RCTs yeah. are and yeah. why they <laughs> exist in philanthropy? Yeah, I think it's like, there's a few pieces there. I mean, I think uh, I I don't think we've solved the problem of the longitudinal challenge in in terms of in philanthropy of being able to track a donor um, mm-hmm. over long term time horizons. Um, I think there are some, we're working with partners to, to try to do that, but it's always a challenge, right? So how do you, if you survey people, you still have kind of a biased uh, mm. sample, right? So, so there's some challenges there, but, um, but we, the platform is a, is an interesting, uh, I think channel for that. So, so we are hopeful that we can find some, some strategies. Mm. Uh, in other work we do, it's a little bit easier to track one user really, as opposed to one behavior, if that makes mm. sense. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of the, a lot of like the sort of website uh, data collection is, is like, a behavior and action in the moment, like you said, and what we really want to understand is like actually what is a user doing over time, as mm. opposed to just like on their one their one interaction. Right. Um, but but to step back, so that that's one piece. But then the the randomized control trial, the RCT. Do you want me to define it? Is that helpful? Yeah, please do. Oh, yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so if you so a randomized control trial, that language comes from the the, the pharmaceutical industry, right? So. Uh, and it's, it's because it, that requires like very rigorous testing, right. Before we release drugs to the public. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, the theory behind it basically is if you want to test out an intervention, which is the word that we use again, borrowing that from the, the pharmaceutical agency, uh, land, but putting it here, um, if you want to test something on a group of people to see if it actually changed their behavior. If you just do that without, um, without doing any sort of control, which I'll explain, what, what happens is you can't really tell whether or not it was your thing that changed their behavior or something else. So, um, you know, right now, for example, if I were testing something on my website to, you know, this is, this is late March, Brady, and uh, <laughs> we are in the midst of a, obviously it's like midst really of a pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so if I were testing something on my website right now and absent, I guess, a control, I would say, I might look back at that data and say, wow, that really didn't work. No one, if, if I'm in, not in a, you know, depending, I guess, where you're raising money, but um, for example, if you're in the environmental space right now, it's mm. a little bit tough. Uh, so you might conclude, oh, it's not working. But actually, there's a lot more going on in the world that's influencing mm. those numbers. And so what a randomized control trial do, does is it creates two groups of people that are statistically identical by randomizing across a large group. Um, and so... When you have that scenario, if you show one group of people your thing, apply the, <laughs> apply your intervention to that one group of people, uh, and then you see a change in behavior, you can actually say that change in behavior was due to the, the intervention that I designed uh, and that they experienced. So it lets you assign causality to the, to the situation. Um, and then you know, ah, okay, this, this, this thing had this impact, and then you can feel pretty certain about scaling it up or applying it in other ways. And that's really useful because then you're not going to waste money on things that don't work or sometimes like have weird backfire effects. Um, uh, an early prototype of our goal setting tool actually uh, almost accidentally forced people to take it. It showed up as a splash screen on your <laughs> on the website. And we were like, hey, that's fine. This will just get more people to use it. But actually, we saw this very weird backfire effect where people sort of panicked and actually closed out of the whole window and mm. temporarily drop donation rates. So we, mm. we got rid of that immediately. <laughs> but but like that was really useful information, right? And that's information you might not have seen if you hadn't run a, a quick test like that. Yeah. And so the, the um, again, a couple, couple things there. And we can come back to just like the power of, of testing. But the, the randomized control trial methodology, it sounds 
I mean, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's great. So like, how can you actually control all those things? So for example, <laughs> one of my favorite studies from last year, we took two groups of people, uh, randomized one group, got one additional cultivation email per week for three months. And then they continued it on for six months. And the other group got the regular kind of email cadence. And that was the only change that we did to that audience. And the people that got the extra email a week got uh, 80% increase in engagement, 42% increase in revenue. Or oh, after six months, it was 56% increase in engagement, 42% increase in revenue. So a lot more engagement, a lot more revenue. So um, one of the outcomes is like cultivation is really powerful in driving revenue. But the thing that we couldn't control is all the other things that they clicked. You know, what they exactly clicked within all the emails that they received. Like how controlled... Does an environment, you know, need to be because especially when you get into digital testing, there's only so much that you can control. And the longer it goes on, the less control you actually have. Right, right. Absolutely. Right. And in theory, if you have a group that's big enough and you've done the randomization well, mm. both groups should be experiencing those Similar, weird other right. factors, right, in theory. But there are sometimes you have to be careful because there are weird confounding um, you know, that variables that can show up and, right. um, like even weird, th- I'm trying to think like some weird, you know, occasionally have someone who like alphabetic does it like alphabetically, or they try to like split the alphabet and they're like, ah, the top of the alphabet <laughs> is my control and the bottom right. is a treatment. But the problem is that people's names don't actually, like there are lots of, yeah, people have different, people's names actually correlate to like different Stuff. cultural backgrounds right. and like, right, other stuff, right. right. So, so it actually is a lot more complicated. Um, but, uh, and then the other challenge I think maybe you're getting a little bit too, is that you, you should be trying to change in theory, you should try to do as little as possible so that you can say like, oh, it was this one thing. So, um, you know, like going back to our, our framing example, hmm. uh, you know, if we're going to frame something from a loss aversion perspective, we should really do it so well that like one email is exactly identical, except for mm-hmm. there is a slight difference in the loss aversion framing and the other email doesn't have that. Um, Sometimes, so this is this is one of the things that gets ideas for you too is different than like an academic setting where that is that you might get to that level of detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are primarily interested in impact, so mm-hmm. uh, we want to see that this thing worked and that we got the the goals that we're looking for. And so, it, and in this case, it might be a little bit different. In some of our work, especially where it's like health focused, right? We don't want to we don't care so much about the exact mechanisms. We leave that to our academic partners to figure that out. What we yeah. really want to see is like, did we get more adults getting the flu vaccination or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and so we might throw a few different, uh, uh, like interventions let's speak, into, into the email, um, to test. Yeah, that. I think that, I mean, we do the same, right? So we're not a academic research institution where we work with nonprofits to help them get lifts. And right. if you do isolate one variable, especially if it's smaller, the impact is smaller, the sample size is greater, and then it takes you more time to like exactly. get to your own destination. So, you know, th- we struggle with that all the time of like, what's the balance between, you know, academic rigor and also just the real world of producing results. Absolutely. Um, and that's always has a balance. And it's one of the tough things when we teach, you know, AB testing, because people, you know, read the rules, or maybe they take statistics in college or whatever it is. And they're like, what, you can't change two variables. <laughs> and it's like, well, right. hey, like, you you kind of can like you can variable <laughs> right. cluster things like if if you're trying to do personal tone this is a good example actually mm-hmm. if you just change the subject line and then they open the email and then the rest of the email is corporate tone are you really testing personal tone in the email or are you just testing personal tone in the subject line 
you know, if the sender is like CEO, you know, bigwig, are you really carrying through? So you could change who the, who it's from, the subject line and the tone of the email, three different variables, but along one hypothesis of the more personal approach. So there is what there are ways to do, you know, multiple changes with a guiding hypothesis as well. Um, right. So yeah. again, this is where like the the nerd academic <laughs> side, you know, meets rubber meets the road and, and how to actually do that. Um, right. So all, all right. that to say, the power of of RCTs, I think, is still underused. You know, like a right. lot of the tests that we do and other people doesn't right. look at more of the the downstream. This is where premiums, like if we give you something, you can get more giving. But six months down the road, it typically decreases the likelihood of their giving, the happiness of their giving. So if we're not tracking those things, then we could be hurting ourselves, actually, if we're not tracking those things. So if someone's right, maybe right. interested in like, I would like to do more longitudinal testing or more like RCT style. You mentioned a couple things like, you know, truly randomizing. Don't just split a list based on the alphabet or something like that. What what would be some other like tips or best practices when people are considering it? Yeah, I, I would. So uh, not to plug our website too much, but we actually do have the ideas for you website has a, a paid, we actually have an AB testing tool because it is so hard to get right. Um, that can help guide people through it. Um, also I've directed, yeah, I guess in general, what I end up telling people to do is, um, go find a, a really simple guide online to walk you through it because even this, the analysis itself can be a little bit mm. confusing. Um, so, but in general, I think you've hit the big things, right? So like making sure that, that you're, you're setting up the, the sort of rent that you have the ability to set up that randomized structure. So one of the challenges, right, you can make sure that someone coming to your website, when they click on a link that you're actually able to like randomize them to different, to different pages. Mm. Uh, and there are a lot of tools nowadays that exist to, to help that. Um, but, but I mean, I think maybe overall, it's just like remembering that this is okay to test things and that it's like, okay to fail. Like mm. You actually want one thing to fail, right? You want to know that one is better than the other. Um, and so I think also just like giving yourself the ability to say like, you know what, I'm not going to know. I can't figure out which, you know, which tone is going to work right in the situation. I can think it to death and I can go look at a million academic papers, but you're not going to quite know until right. you actually just test it. Yeah, no, that's a great point too. But also why the, you know, the, an actual testing method, methodology really helps because failure isn't the problem. If you fail and don't learn, that is a huge problem. Right. right so right. if you don't say, this is what we're trying to learn and here's, you know, what the hypothesis actually is. And that's one of the biggest things that actually we've seen from people who I'm using air quotes test is not actually like a hypothesis formulation. So like you try something and then you see the result and then you kind of reverse engineer, you know, it worked or didn't work. And it's like, well, maybe you got the lift that you wanted, but did you learn, you know, what you really right. needed? And that's, that's the thing that's so critical about the methodology. So anyways, we'll, sh- we'll right. share your link, your AB testing uh, tool. Sure, uh, out yeah. with people right. if they're looking to to do more of that so anyways we could go on and on about testing and things like that so <laughs> thanks thanks for sharing um i appreciate you taking time to share more about you know the research and the really cool work that you guys are doing um where can people find out more about you and your work yeah so ideas42.org ideas42 just like the hitchhiker's guide for the galaxy not mm-hmm. you know number <laughs> uh answer to the the universe uh if you go there we have a page devoted to our charitable giving work we also that's where you can find the ab testing uh link but um yeah check out our giving page the other thing is that we you know we're always looking for partners and people to talk to about this stuff uh we are a nonprofit, and then like you saw from our examples we work with workplace giving platforms and charity aggregators and 
uh, you know, payment platforms, all sorts of different staffs, et cetera. We work with partners a lot to actually make our work happen. So um, we are always happy to, to chat about our work. Awesome. Well, thanks again for the, the work that you do and for taking some time to come in and share about some of the work, that work that you're doing. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. 